Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. For very long at all, you probably heard the statement that our mission here, in fact, Kyle just said it a few minutes ago, is to be the easiest place for people to experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? Well, this morning, we're going to answer that question specifically, and then over the next few weeks, talk about what it means for us going forward as we seek to be the easiest place for people to experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I want to begin by quoting a statement that James, the brother of Jesus, made one time. The comment was made in the context of what was probably the very first church business meeting. Sometime around 50 AD, James was there. Uh, Paul was there, Peter was there, some of the other early, early church leaders, but they called this meeting to try and figure out what to do with all these Gentiles who were now accepting Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Because at that time, the Jewish mindset was still trying to figure out how the message of grace that Jesus preached fit into their religious Jewish traditions that required a lot of rules and regulations in order to get right with God. And the discussion was how the church could be more effective and more efficient in reaching these people who were once far from God. So finally, after much discussion, here's what they landed on. This was James' summary of their strategy going forward. Acts 15, 19, he said, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He said, look, the first thing we need to do is we need to remove all these obstacles that might prevent these people from coming to God. Literal translation, we should make the church the easiest place for people to experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And that, dear ones, is the driving force behind everything that we do here at Family Church. Our goal, every Sunday morning, our goal is to remove all barriers and obstacles that, that might hinder or make it difficult for people to experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus. But again, what does that look like? What does that look like? What does that look like for us as a church? What does it look like for you as an individual follower and member of Family Church? Well, to answer those questions, I want us to look at some stories, some parables that Jesus told once. They're found in Luke chapter 15. It's an interesting uh, chapter because as far as I know, I haven't researched it, but I think it's the only chapter in the Bible that is made up completely of parables. And it takes up, there's three stories that make up the, the chapter. The story of the, the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and then the story of the lost or the prodigal son. And the key to understanding a parable is to figure out who you are in the story. Anytime you read, go, I'll, I'll, I'll throw this in, I'll, this won't cost you any extra. I'm going to throw this in for free, okay? If you want to understand a parable, you need to ask yourself this question, who am I in that story? All right. So with that, let's begin at Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to hear Jesus teach. Okay, time out, time out, time out. Notorious sinners as opposed to your everyday garden variety sinner? Does that strike anyone else as odd? Really? These, these, were, notor these, these were some bad hombres, right? Any former notorious sinners in here? Scotty Hutchison's hand better be raised. <laughs> so, 
Good sinners, people that, were, that was kind of like, we're really good at this. That's the type of people who were attracted to Jesus, which is interesting when you think about it, the fact that the people who were nothing like Jesus actually liked hanging around with him, right? But this upset the Jewish leaders, the, the religious, the, the church folks. And, and so, and Jesus, Jesus knew this. So Luke tells us that kind of how this played out. In the very next verse, verse 2, says, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law, the church folks, says they, they complained that he, Jesus, was associating with such sinful people, even <gasps> eating with them. Can you imagine that? I find it interesting that every church says they want to reach the lost until they start reaching the lost. Because included in those lost folks that you're reaching are some of these notorious sinners. And so Jesus, knowing that it upset the religious leaders when he hung out with the notorious sinners, he addressed this flawed mindset by telling these three stories. And they all have to do with something or something, someone or something of value that was once lost but then found. Story number one is about the lost sheep. So let's read it. Verses 3 and 4, Luke 15. So Jesus told them this story. It says, if a man has 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one? Everyone say that with me, all right? On three. One, two, three. For the one. Let's do it again. One, two, three. For the one that is lost until he finds it. Verse 5. And when he, found, when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. Verse 6, when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, verse 7, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. I mentioned earlier the key to understanding parables is to ask yourself, who am I in this story? So question, who are you in this story? Maybe you're the one. Maybe you're the sheep that wandered off and got lost. You used to be a part of the flock, part of the 99. You used to go to church, maybe, but something happened. Maybe you had a bad church experience. Maybe you got hurt. Maybe you stepped on one of those landmines of life that come from out of nowhere and leave us broken and devastated. Loss of a job, loss of a loved one, loss of a relationship. It doesn't really matter how you got there. Reality is you're there. And now you find yourself at a place where you never thought you'd be before. And please note the context here. Jesus is talking about people who once knew. You see that? Sheep who were once part of the flock. Now, my take is most of you probably identify with the 99. You're in the flock. You come to church faithfully. You're hopefully, hopefully serving on one of our dream teams on Sunday mornings. But even if you consider yourself to be a part of the flock, part of the 99, still, I think it would be good for you to remember how relentless Jesus was in pursuing you when you were the one who wandered off. He came looking for you. He came looking for us. When you were far from God, he kept hunting you down with a phone call from someone or someone who just kept bugging you all week, all month, kept calling you each week, inviting you to come back home, come back to church. Maybe someone invited you to a Bible study, but you always had an excuse, didn't you? The point being, our stubbornness doesn't stop God from continuing to look for us and hunt us down and bring us back. How does the song go? Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, 
leaves the 99. And it's because of that never-ending reckless love that many of you are sitting in here this morning. Our mission is to be the easiest place for people to experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But our motive for doing this, our passion for the lost, is tied to the passion that the great shepherd Jesus had for that one lost sheep who had wandered off. A passion driven not by judgment and anger, but by love and kindness. Now here's how the Apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this not mean anything to you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Do you see that? It's the kindness of God that draws people to him, not the judgment of God, not the fear of hell. So what, what does Jesus, the great shepherd, do? If Jesus is our example, what did he do to make it easy for people to experience his love and forgiveness? Well, one thing that he does is he seeks. He seeks. Jesus seeks and searches. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. You know, there's really nothing inherently noble about a shepherd going and looking for a lost sheep. What's impressive is the risk he took by leaving the 99 to go look for that one lost sheep. And notice, he didn't just make a casual, obligatory search, walk over to the edge of the cliff, kind of scan the horizon. Well, no, I don't see it, so go back to the 99. Come on, let's go. Still got 99 left. I'll go ahead and go on with them. Is that what he did? How long did he look for that sheep? Let's read it, verse 4. Go to search for the one that is lost until, how long did the shepherd look for the sheep? Until he finds it. Until he finds it. See, you parents understand this type of love and concern. Any of you parents want to be brave enough to admit you almost lost a child? All right. Christmas shopping at the mall. We're in, we're in the time of the year where fairs are going on. Maybe you were at the fair, any place where there was a large crowd. All of a sudden you look around and one of your kids is missing. How do, how do you respond to that? Kind of, you know, scan down the, you know, the, the, well, I don't, you know, I don't see him anywhere. So, oh, well, you know, one less lunch to pack, one less bed to make. Come on, guys. Come on, kids. Let's go ride the Ferris wheel. Is that how you would respond? No. No, the adrenaline would start pumping. You, you would be scared, wouldn't you? You would be on, intent on finding that lost child. You would be relentless in your search for that. And see, that's the type of urgency that God wants his church to have for those sheep who have wandered off and got lost. To the point that we're actually scared for them. Scared for them. One of the truths of this parable is, the, is that God never gives up searching for the one. So Jesus seeks. That's the first thing he does. Second thing Jesus does to make it easy for people to come to him and experience his love and forgiveness is he saves or he rescues. See, here's the deal. You can't save yourself, you, me. None of us can rescue ourselves. Only the grace of God can rescue us and lift us up out of the situation and circumstances that we find ourselves in. As I was reading through this parable again this past week, I thought it was interesting what Jesus didn't say in this parable. I'm talking about when the shepherd finally found the, the one lost sheep. He didn't rebuke the sheep. When he found the lost sheep, he didn't come up and say, okay, all right, this is the last time. This is your last warning. You wander off again, you're on your own. I ain't coming and looking for you. Is that what he did? No, that's what religion does. What does grace do? Verse 5, and when he found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. See, religion says you walk back home. Grace says, I'll carry you on my shoulders. We're not asking people to walk back. We're simply inviting them to come home. 
So first Jesus searches for us, and then he rescues us. And then the third thing that he does is he rejoices or he celebrates. Now, don't miss this. This is a huge part of the story that I think is lost on most people. Jesus doesn't just tolerate our coming back to him. He celebrates it. He actually has a party. Verse 6, when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, verse 7, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Okay, is it just me or does that seem just a little bit over the top? I, I mean, really, you know, throw, throw a huge party, you know, and invite all your neighbors, fire up the barbecue grill, throw on some brats, some burgers, have people bring some side dishes, right? Because of one lost sheep? Because you found one stinking sheep? You're going to throw a party because of that? Here's the point, and don't miss this. God wants us to capture a glimpse of his heart, his attitude, his posture, anytime one of his own that has wandered off comes back home. He celebrates, listen, God celebrates the return of broken, messed up people. He celebrates it. God doesn't tolerate us, he celebrates us. That's the story of the lost sheep. The second story is the parable of the lost coin, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? Verse 9. And when she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, verse 10, there is joy in the presence of God's angels even when one sinner repents. Okay, again, there's a part of the story here that just, doesn't this just seem a little over the top? Really? You know, she, she lost a few coins? I mean, for most of us, if we lost some change, we wouldn't even realize it until a few days later. In fact, some of you right, sitting in here right now, you probably have three or four dollars worth of change sitting at home in your couch underneath the cushions. You don't even, now you're going to go home and check because you forgot about that, right? But really, even if you did find some loose change in your cushions of your couch or in the bottom of a drawer or whatever, would you really call your friends and throw a party? Yeah. Hey, hey, Mike, hey, Mike, guess what? Just found $3.82 under my cushions. Having a party. Come on over. Well, here's where it really helps to have an understanding of the Jewish culture at that time. Because these coins that were lost were the equivalent of a wedding gift from her husband on her wedding day. These coins were, were symbolic of the covenant relationship she had with her husband. And they, they were valued in the same way that a bride would value her wedding rings today. You know, I just performed Seth and Lauren's wedding last Friday, ask Lauren how much it would wreck her day if she lost her wedding rings. You think that would mess her day up if she lost her wedding rings? All right. Better, let, better yet, ask Seth. I saw that ring. It's a nice ring. <laughs> if Seth found out Lauren lost that ring, there'd be, there'd be seat cushions flying everywhere trying to find that puppy. All right. So the lost sheep, the lost coin, are pictures of the relentless pursuit of Jesus, the shepherd for us, that search and rescue for the lost. So the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the third story about the prodigal son, this is probably the most emotional of the three stories. So let's read it, beginning at verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. Man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate, dad. I want it now. 
says, he says, before you die, before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. You know, this is probably the most insulting thing a son could do to their father in that culture. Because basically what the younger son is doing here, he's telling his dad, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. I wish you were dead, dad. Verse 13, a few days later, this younger son packed up all of his belongings. He got that inheritance that he asked for. Packed up all of his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. Verse 14, about that time, his money ran out. How many of you know the money always runs out? It always runs out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. Verse 15, he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. Verse 16, the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. You know, this was probably about the most degrading, humiliating place a Jewish young man could ever find himself in. Wandering around, wallowing around with pigs all day long. He is so messed up, he's so broken, so lost, that the slop that he's feeding these pigs is starting to look like an entree from Texas Roadhouse. That's how low he had become. This is a classic picture of the breaking of self-sufficiency. Because, see, we're such proud, self-sufficient people, and, you know, and that's ingrained into our, our minds from the time we're little tykes, right? Got on the baseball field, on the t-ball field, get hit by the ball, start crying. Coach comes up, quit crying. Rub some dirt on it. You'll be all right. Just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, whatever that means. The self-sufficient mindset that everyone has to some degree needs to be broken. And oftentimes the process can be painful, but it's necessary. It's necessary. And God will do whatever it takes to get our attention, to break our pride and bring us to a place of dependency on Him and not on us. So if you're praying for a prodigal, listen to me. If you're praying for a prodigal, don't be afraid to pray a dangerous prayer for them. Pray that God will do whatever it takes to get their attention. And so now God has this young man's full attention. What happens next? Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, that spiritual aha moment, he said to himself, you know, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, now watch this. This is amazing. The son actually begins rehearsing his moving back speech home here. Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. Now watch closely this next statement. And while, his, while he was still a long way off, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And filled with compassion and love, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. So when the son gets close to home, his dad sees him, runs out to greet him. And at this point, the son begins to tell his dad his moving back home speech that he had been rehearsing on the way home. Anyone ever, anyone ever have to give a moving back home speech to your parents? Can I come back and live in the basement for just a little bit? It won't be long. Right. Kind of humiliating, isn't it? So the son has come back home. He's rehearsed this speech. His dad comes out to him. So he starts giving this moving back home speech. And then look what 
There's the father's response here. Verse 21, his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Anyone ever prayed a prayer like that? A prayer of trying to crawl your way back to God, into God's favor? Okay, God, I really mean it this time. This time I'm, I'm going to do better. This time I'm, I'm going to start coming to church. I'm going to start coming every Sunday. I'm going to join a growth group. I might even start tithing, God, because I'm serious. This time I mean business, right? Verse 22, the father interrupts him. While he's giving his moving back home speech, the father interrupts him. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So the party began. Now, if this were a movie, at this point, the background music would be festive and upbeat. I mean, there's a big party going on. You got Cool in the Gang playing over the Bluetooth speaker. Celebrate good times. Come on. <laughs> Mike knows that song, I guess, is the only one, right? <laughs> so you got this festive music. But then it fades out, and the narrator comes in. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields. <laughs> Punctuates the point, thank you. <laughs> Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. He asked one of the servants, hey, what's going on? says, your brother's back. Your father's killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry. Wouldn't go in. His father came out, come, come on, come on, let's celebrate. Older brother said, all these years, dad, all these years I've slaved for you, never once refused to do a single thing for you that you told me to do, and in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son, when my brother comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Here is where we see the older brother syndrome. And sadly, we see this play out time and time again in the local church. Where the 99, instead of celebrating the return of a lost sheep, they resent it. So the father explains to the older son, verse 31, his father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed with my, by my side, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate, verse 32, we had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Listen to me, dear ones. We cannot stay on mission to make family church the easiest place for people to experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ if we have people with older brother syndrome. So real quick, let me give you three ways that we at Family Church welcome prodigals back home. What does being the easiest place for people to experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ look like? First, at Family Church, we expect them to come home. We expect them to come home. See, expectancy is the same as exercising faith. 
Verse 20. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Question. How did the father know his younger son was coming back? He was looking for him. He was out on the porch looking for him. Who knows how many hours, days, weeks. We're not told how long the, the, older, the younger son was gone, the prodigal was gone. But it says that when he came back, the father, while he was still way off, his father saw him because his father was looking for him. His father expected him to come back home. Expectancy creates preparation, right? You know how this works. If you're having company, don't you prepare? You know you're having company? You're expecting company. What do you do? You clean up the house? You got mow the lawn? You get everything? Maybe go to the store or buy some, something special to have when they're there? Right? Because you want to make a good impression. That's what we do. That's what we seek to do with our dream teams on Sunday mornings. That's why we have some of our first impressions dream team members standing outside every Sunday morning, rain or shine, cold or hot, holding a sign, waving, smiling at people who are coming by. People pointing to the parking lot, welcoming them home. We've got, now think about this, we've got one shot a week to welcome home prodigals. And we need to make the most of that 90-minute window when God leads them back home. Expect them to come back. And the way he does that today is through us. When our First Impressions dream team is standing out there smiling, waving, representing the Father who waits expectantly with open arms and a big smile, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. We've been expecting you. So we expect them to come home. Second thing that we're going to do is we run to them. We run to them. Verse 20 is far and away one of the most emotionally charged statements in all the Bible. It says, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. You see that? Please note the father, he's not standing on the porch, arms crossed, foot tapping. Uh-huh. Look what the cat dragged back home here. I knew you'd be back. I knew you'd be back. No, that's what religion does. That's what religion does. Right? Religion puts you on probation. Religion says, let me see how well you're going to do first. Religion says, well, they're here this week. Let's see if they come back next week. Grace always runs to the mess. Grace always runs to brokenness and, and accepts them with open arms. But think about this. What, what's the prodigal thinking as he sees his father coming running towards him? You ever thought about that? Because the last time he saw his dad, he basically said, I wish you were dead. And now he's been humbled. He's had that aha moment. He's coming back home in humility. He comes around the corner. His dad sees his dad come off the porch and come running towards him. What is he thinking? Is he thinking, uh-oh, am I going to, do I turn and run? What do I do here? But as his dad gets closer, he sees his dad smiling. He doesn't see anger. He sees a smile on his face. He sees a huge welcoming eyes running towards him. The way that we run towards lost sons and daughters coming back home to family church is by standing out there with a huge smile and a wave and a sign that says, welcome home or you belong here. You belong here. Why do we run towards them? Because that's what grace does. 
Verse 20 says, when his father reached his son, he embraced him and kissed him. It's interesting because those two verbs, embraced and kissed, they were actually written in the present tense, which means, watch this, the literal translation is when the, son, when, the, when the father reached his son, he kept on kissing him and kept on hugging him. Isn't that interesting? When I was a kid, my grandma on my dad's side, my grandma and grandpa lived in Delaware, so I didn't get to go see her very often. So I don't remember a whole lot of, about her, but what, what I do remember on those few occasions that I did get to see her, every time I would see her, she would come up and just start hugging on me and kissing on my cheek and just, when was the last time you were so loved on it got awkward? <laughs> Grace believes and expects the best. That's why we run towards them and keep on hugging them and keep on kissing them. Which brings us to the third thing that we do to make family church the easiest place for people to experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We invest in them. Verse 22, but his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him, get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. Each of those four things, the robe, the ring, sandals, and the fatted calf, they each represent things that, that help welcome the son back home. The robe represented honor. The ring represented authority. The sandals represented sonship. And the killing of the fatted calf represented provision. But someone pointed out this out to me after, after the first service, and I never saw this before. As far as we know, the, 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 son, the prodigal son didn't go in and take a shower first. The father put that stuff on him coming straight from the pig pen. Because, see, religion says you go clean up and then you can put this on. Grace says, come on, come on, right? When anyone comes back to God or comes to God, period, we all need those four things. We need honor. We need authority. We need a place in the family again, and we need provision. And our Father has all these things ready for you. He's just waiting for you to come back home. He's just waiting for you to come back home. Older brother syndrome, religion, wants people to pay or earn their way back into the family. Grace spreads the table and is already celebrating your return, just waiting for you. So listen, if you're part of the 99, you're part of the search and rescue team. Here, here's how the Apostle Paul put it. As part of those leaving the 99 and searching for the one, he said that the driving force behind that search mission should be the love of God. Here's how he worded it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 12. He says, that's why we work urgently with everyone we meet to get them ready to face God. If I acted crazy, look at that. He says, if I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted overly serious, I did it for you. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and last word in everything we do. Folks, you cannot fall in love with Jesus without a desire to share that love with others. If the church isn't genuinely in love with Jesus, there's no motivation, there's no passion to leave the 99 and go searching for the one. Now, some final comments, and then I want to pray for you. About three years ago, we started making some changes in the church. After 30 years, not that anything was necessarily wrong, I just felt like we could do better. We could do a better job. 
See, here's the deal. There's different ways to do church. And for 30 years, we did church a certain way. And again, it wasn't necessarily wrong. I just felt like we could do better. So we begin to address that. And some people didn't like it. Some people thought we were crazy, like Paul said. What are you, what are you doing? What, what's, what's with all this, you know, standing out in the yard, waving at people, holding signs, high five, fist bumps? You got a car, coffee bar back there. You got, you know, you dark the sanctuary. You got smoke. You got loud music. What are you, you crazy? What, what are you doing? Can I tell you that as God as my witness, all we wanted to do was be better at leaving the 99 and reaching the one. That, that, that was my only motive. That was our only motive. That we could somehow get some traction in leaving the 99 and reaching the one. And we decide the best way to begin doing that is by making family church the easiest place for people to come home. So what does it mean to be the easiest place for people to experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ? It means, first of all, that we expect lost sons and daughters to come home. And second, when they do, after they come home, we run to them. We welcome them with open arms. We keep hugging on them and kissing on them. Hopefully it didn't get too awkward for you when you pulled into the parking lot. And then we have the table set for them to celebrate their return. How? How? By serving them coffee, by showing them around, helping them get their children checked into family kids, helping them take their next steps in their faith journey. And the operative word here is we. We. So if you're part of the 99, if you consider your family church to be your church home, and you're not on a search and rescue team, serving on one of our dream teams, that's your next step. That, because this is all skate, people. If we're going to be the easiest place, it's going to take everyone. We can't afford to have people just come. Uh-uh. This is all skate. Everyone needs to be on board with this. That's huge. That's huge. That, that's not just pastor talk. I'm, I'm, being, I'm being dead serious when I say that. We need everyone on board. And we'll talk more about what that looks like in the next few weeks going forward. Bow your heads. Let me pray for you. You know, I've already addressed the 99, those of us who have already come back home. We know what our responsibility is as part of God's search and rescue team. Let me address the one. Let me address the one here. If you're here this morning and you've drifted from the Father, please know that we're not here to judge you. We're here to welcome you back home because we've been expecting you. We've been expecting you. That's why we ran to greet you when you pulled up in the parking lot and hopefully loved on you, made you feel welcome. If you've drifted from home, maybe squandered some things, lost some lost opportunities because of some poor choices or decisions that you made, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, maybe you had your own aha moment during this message at some point. The Holy Spirit's dealing with you and you're tired of hanging out in the pig pen of this world. And you know it. You know it. Listen to the Father as he tells you, come on home, son.
Come on home, daughter. The table's set. It's time to come home. He's just waiting to hear a yes from you. If that's you, I want to invite you to to make Jesus Lord of your life. So if you would just pray this simple prayer after me. Just say, Jesus, I love you. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for dying for me. And I'm asking you to come live inside of me, inside my heart, by your Holy Spirit, and help me begin living my life for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.